So to tonight's first guest, I was looking through uh, my notes and I saw that Sloane Crosley came to the salon uh, for the first time in 2010 at Shoreditch House. Who was there that night? Does anybody... Quite a few of you were there that night. Lovely. Yes, you're very proud. You'll get badges afterwards. Um, and she cheerily conjured the ghosts of prostitutes past and she invited us to a scarf orgy in her new apartment. Scarf orgy. Um, she's been compared to Dorothy Parker and Sarah Silverman, but she is in fact slightly taller um, and more insightful. Her essays are painfully funny, sometimes just painful. We've all loved those. And while we've been loving those, she's been busy writing her debut novel. Um, and this is where I tie my French an homage to Guy de Maupassant's short story, The Necklace. Nod of approval, thank you very much. It's a caper centering around a search for a fabulous necklace, um, which was stolen by who else? The Nazis. It all begins at a horribly swanky wedding, which sounds very familiar, um, in Florida with a group of college friends trying to work out if they're going to stay friends or not stay friends. Please welcome for the UK premiere of our debut novel, Sloane Crossley. <laughs> Everybody can hear everything? Okay. Hi. Do you want to read? Yeah, I do want to read. Okay. Um, so um, I'm grateful for that introduction because it summarized a lot of uh, what I was going to summarize, so I don't have to say. So, But what I'm going to do tonight is uh, read a little bit from each of the three main characters. Um, it's really a love triangle on top of everything that Damien just mentioned. Um, and so just to give you a flavor of who they are, I'll just set them up briefly, um, a tiny bit from each um, sort of building. Uh, the first is Victor, who is this sort of sad sap Eeyore-esque character who's just been fired from his job um, at the internet's seventh largest search engine. <laughs> he knew that this was the start of a new life. As homely as the old one was, this one was going to be straight up ugly. The whole company was in trouble when your aim as a corporation is to unseat the sixth largest version of your corporation. You're legally working on the set of a Christopher Guest film. But being the first to be let go was humiliating. Without the alignment of lunch and commuting schedules, Victor quickly lost touch with the handful of coworkers he liked. He would do nothing all day but plan on doing other things. He trolled employment websites, took naps, and drank early. Some days he knew it was raining only because his mail was wet. He ate foods that could survive nuclear attacks. Hello, frozen burrito, old friend. How I've missed ignoring your suggestion that I cook you on high for five minutes, flip you over, and cook you on high for three minutes again. Okay, that's just, that's just Victor, very brief. Um, it'll, get, it'll get longer. Um, then they, we have Nathaniel, who is another part of this college friend uh, love triangle. Nathaniel was probably the most fun to write in a lot of ways because Nathaniel is... A narcissist. A narcissist. I don't know. Can I curse? I don't know. Of course you curse. You've been here swearing before. Oh, that's true. I didn't yeah. know, but it's swankier digs. Um, okay. Longer swear words. Longer swear Okay, he's a total jackass. More French. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> More French, exactly. Anyway, so Nathaniel is a struggling screenwriter in L.A. who's trying to, to convince everybody that he's doing quite well when, in fact, he's not. The morning haze had yet to burn off. It was the hour at which Los Angeles feels most like San Francisco. Nathaniel went for a run around the reservoir, kicking up sand and watching women in the dog park. He ran back up the hill, too, the whole way. 
A month ago, after years of extolling the health benefits of a life in Los Angeles, something inside his body had turned on him. He felt fatigued no matter how much he slept or how much hot yoga he did. Sometimes he experienced shortness of breath just walking across the studio lot. He was about to turn 30, not 50. So he went to a nutritionist in Inglewood who told him to incorporate more zinc into his diet and drink more water. Then he went to an energy healer who told him more or less the same thing, but tacked on some meditative breathing exercises. Then he went to a kinesiologist who suggested he keep both legs elevated above his heart whenever possible, especially when in the shower. <laughs> Even when in the shower, Nathaniel asked. No, said the kinesiologist, especially. It all worked for a while, but then one day he was sitting at home, legs up, trying to work, and his vision blurred. The page of dialogue he had just written transformed into impenetrable chunks of black squiggle. His heart started racing like a hummingbird's. At least that's what he told the cardiologist who told him that if that were true, he'd be dead. <laughs> Super dead, he clarified. 1,200 beats per minute. Then the cardiologist told him that a whale beat would also be cause for concern at six beats per minute, and that giraffes have a second heart in their necks. Apparently, he was leaning towards veterinary medicine before switching to humans. <laughs> the cardiologist conducted the usual tests for abnormalities. It wasn't a palpitation. It wasn't an arrhythmia. It wasn't a panic attack either. Well, Nathaniel could have told him that. He didn't have an office job or a mortgage or kids to panic about. Just the steady pressure of being one of Los Angeles's two million aspiring TV writers. As many as a whole day's worth of hummingbird heartbeats. No, Nathaniel's heart appeared to be a dutiful muscle, opening and shutting its valves firmly. So what was it then? At long last, his second electrocardiogram came back, bearing the gift of a diagnosis. Nathaniel had an abnormally small heart. For, the guy in the, uh, for a guy in the prime of his life, said the doctor, you have an abnormally small heart. It's not serious, you're not going to keel over, but it could explain the sudden uneven heart rate and the lightheadedness. Do you smoke? Nathaniel shook his head. Do you exercise? He thought it was pretty clear that he did. He was a naturally slim person, but a belly would appear on his abdomen if he did nothing to deter it, and he had been very successful in keeping it at bay. Still, the doctor told him that he needed to get his heart rate up more often. That's why athletes have huge hearts, said the doctor, removing his stethoscope. Nathaniel considered the drug in sex scandals that plagued professional athletes. He started to say it, sitting there in his underwear. They're not known for their huge hearts. Then he thought better of it. This doctor had chosen the most symbolic specialty in all the medical profession. He'd probably had it with otherwise intelligent people conflating medicine and symbolism. And Nathaniel was no different. He knew that if he had received the opposite diagnosis, that of a swelled heart just bursting out of his chest, he would have told anyone who would listen. He would have used it to gain access to gain access to the sympathies and beds of women especially. Not that he needed the assistance, but man, what a deal sealer. <laughs> and last but not least, we have her. Her name is Kezia, uh, which is after a Catherine Mansfield short story, if anyone's a fan. Um, 
And the only setup here that's needed is the wedding that you mentioned. Um, I know it's so upsetting, I'm sorry. It's a baby crying. <laughs> um, and uh, her, the bride of the wedding has uh, foisted a strange man onto her to sort of hook up with for the evening. And they're back at the hotel room. And uh, she's convinced that uh, the man, whose name is Judson, should have gone home with a girl who was tying a cherry stem in her mouth instead of um, our heroine here. And that's all you need to know. Once inside his hotel room, which somehow smelled of him even after such a short period of occupancy, she excused herself to go to the bathroom and apply body lotion to her thighs and armpits. Hotel lotion was essentially scented mayonnaise. When she emerged, Judson was sitting on the bed playing with the TV remote. These buttons should just say porn on them, he said. I know, right, she said, even though she did not. <laughs> Because the TV was off, the buttons did nothing. Okay, she clapped her hands together. I'm going to take my clothes off now. He looked at her as if she'd been beamed into the room. She let her dress drop into a navy moat around her feet. She unhooked her bra, slipped off her underwear, and stood upright. He started with his belt, followed by his jacket. He kissed her, and they stayed like that, locking lips even as they fumbled with the lighting. Her mind raced with nonsensical concerns once they were on the bed. Under the covers or over? A non-issue in a civilian bed, but you had to be an amateur weightlifter to pull back the sheets in these hotel beds. <laughs> she crouched on top of him. He kicked off his underwear with surprising feed. Speed, speed excuse me. I don't know what that would even entail. <laughs> he kicked off his underwear with surprising speed, moving the elastic over the hook of his penis. What is that? She sat up straight. Even in the half dark, she could see that something was amiss between his hip and his groin. He looked down, alarmed, concerned about growths. Oh, that, he said? That's a tattoo. What of? The pyramids? Is that the Louvre? No, it can't be. <laughs> Kezia leaned her face down, momentarily oblivious to the proximity of a dick swaying in her face. It's the Fortress of Solitude, said Judson. <laughs> you got a tattoo of something made of clear crystals? It's where Superman goes to think. <laughs> I know what it is. She sat up again. I guess I always thought therapy would be more convenient for him. True, Judson's stomach muscles vibrated. He began kissing her again, developing a kind of intensity that Kezia recognized. Men clicked over, they went through stages. Women were more consistent. Whatever level of sexual intensity they felt for you when they met you, they stayed there for about 12 hours, the duration of an allergy pill. <laughs> Judson pulled his head back, sinking it further into the pillow. What's wrong? Oh God, she covered her face with both hands and spoke through her fingers, her voice like a flashlight. This is my cue to say nothing, right? Is it nothing, he asked? You don't have to do anything you don't want to do. Oh, Kezia dismounted and lay on her stomach. Please don't say that. If that were true, it would rule out 99% of her daily activities. <laughs> it's okay, he said, stroking her back, well on his way to meaning it. I just feel weird, she said. This is weird, right? I just met you. He stopped moving his hand. I guess it depends on your definition of weird. We'll see how you feel later. 
Bodies were shifted, pillows adjusted, and soon Judson was asleep. Bored of staring at the ceiling, Kezia got up from the bed. In the dark, she removed a paper cap from a glass and poured herself water and stood on the balcony, naked. Her hair blew everywhere. She leaned forward, looking past the slope of her narrowed boobs. Strips of brightly lit pavement framed the pool. The hotel was in the shape of a horseshoe, and she tried to locate her own balcony, wondering if she'd spot poor Victor on it, also unable to sleep. Then she dumped the water and headed back inside. Judson was on his back and lightly snoring. He roused and spooned her and began kissing her neck in a pointed fashion. Maybe now was later. <laughs> Do you know any riddles? She pulled his hand to her chin. Judson took his arm back. He rubbed his eyes as if trying to squish them together. The only one I know is the one everyone knows, he said. Sid and Nancy are dead, surrounded by water and glass. Who were Sid and Nancy? She flipped to face him. Well, there's no riddle there. Yes, there is, he said. Sid and Nancy are fish. Those are real people, she said. Sid Vicious, Sid, uh, Sid Vicious stabs Nancy Spungen multiple times, and the bowl in question is the Chelsea Hotel. And then he dies too. End of riddle, start of fact. They're fish, Judson sighed. Those are the names of the fish. I think you should name them something else when you tell people that riddle. <laughs> What does it matter, he asked, not entirely kindly. It's confusing, she said. Fine, he said. Bonnie and Clyde. <laughs> Kezia indulged herself by giving him a dirty look in the dark. She could guess how Judson would retell the story of this evening. When things were finally getting good and naked, this chick had pulled the plug and decided to play children's games. But she didn't quite care what he thought. She just wanted to kill time until they were exhausted enough to fall asleep. Okay. She leaned on, the si on her side and cradled her head. Okay, watch. A man is lying dead next to a rock. This'll be fun, she lied. I'll give you a hint already. The answer to the riddle has something to do with something we were talking about earlier tonight. Judson looked at her. About how we lost our virginities? After that. About bikini waxes? That wasn't me. <laughs> okay, I give up, he said, go. Okay, she said. A man is lying dead next to a rock. Who is he, and how did he die? Judson examined her face, trying to ascertain if there would be sex waiting for him at the end of this nonsense paved road. Was the man murdered? Kind of, she said. Really? He lifted his chin, a kind of, right off the bat. I don't want to lead you in the wrong direction. Is the man old? Good, but no, not old. Did the rock fall on the man? No. Did the man provoke the rock? No. Is the rock alive? Why would the rock be alive? Because Sid and Nancy are goldfish, that's why, he snapped. I don't know. He scratched himself thoroughly between the sheets. Is the man a real person? No, she slapped his arm in excitement. Good one. Did someone shoot the man? No. Did the rock fall on the man? You already asked me that, she said. Is the man a carpenter or a welder? What? No and no. Is the man Jesus? He's not a carpenter, she said. And he wasn't crucified. Oh, said Judson. Well, was he killed by Jews in any way? <laughs> what kind of a question is that? Okay, fine, he said. Is the rock a transformer? No. Was the rock a big rock? Irrelevant. Did the man cut himself on the rock? No. Is the man famous? Yes. Is he famous because of the rock? Kind of. I give up, said Judson. 
but you're so close. Think about the factors of the riddle. A man is lying dead next to a rock. Who is he? How did he die? Is he a real guy? You already asked me that. Sorry, Judson said. It's hard to keep all the stuff in my head at once. Is he asleep? He's dead, she said. That's one of the three facts we have to work with. Did he kill anyone? Okay, she said. Just focus on the other noun. I don't know what that means. <sighs> she sighed. It means stop asking me questions about the man. Oh, he said. Is the rock valuable? To some people. Which people? That's not a yes or no question. Can you give me a hint, he asked. I already did give you a hint, she said. You of all people on this planet should know this. Because the man has a huge cock? <laughs> yes, she said, totally. Okay, is the rock sharp? Irrelevant. Did the rock strangle him? Now you're not even trying. Was he stoned? Now she lost it. How the fuck's he gonna be stoned to death with one rock? Easy. He stroked her hair in the first unchoreographed gesture since they'd met. I mean, was he high? Oh, no. Would I have heard of the man, Judson asked. Yes, good one. Would I have heard of the rock? Yes. Is the man allergic to the rock? Big yes, she said. <laughs> Is the rock from another planet? Yes. Is it Superman and kryptonite? Yes. Kezia hopped on top of him, the relief at the riddle's ending, acting as an <laughs> unexpected aphrodisiac. <laughs> she pressed her palms on his chest and twisted her pelvis down like a childproof cap. <laughs> he ran his hands along her thighs and over her belly, which she had been sucking in and now sucked in more. You have such tiny bones, he remarked. She could feel a reflexive tightness between her thighs. Judson removed his hands and put them squarely on her breasts. Kezia shut her eyes and leaned on the mattress, framing him. This was good. All she had to do was avoid touching his product-heavy hair and keep him from speaking. <laughs> she could feel her limbs loosen. She leaned down for a kiss, but Judson opened his mouth, inhaled abruptly, and said... Superman doesn't die from kryptonite. <laughs> what? She said. It should go a man is lying sick next to a rock. Who is he and why is he ailing? She kept kissing. Yeah, but people are never sick in riddles. That's not how the riddle universe works. <laughs> Tell me then, how does the riddle universe work? I, they've all hung themselves from dry ice or been shot in card games. So, he asked... So I'm not trying to argue, it's just that riddles are very black and white. Black and white and red all over, if you know what I mean. I don't know what you mean, he said. <laughs> a newspaper, she said. A newspaper is black and white and red all over. She stroked, Judson, she stroked his chest, but Judson, oblivious to the biological turn of events, would not let it go. The riddle was misleading, just like this evening. She could read his mind. All he wanted to do was have a good time at the wedding, get drunk, maybe get laid. He was thinking, I should have gone home with the magic cherry stem tying bridesmaid. Yes, Judson, you should have. Here's a riddle. Who do you take back to your hotel room? The weird pale girl in the shift dress or the one with the butterfly trans tramp stamp inked on the same longitude as her belly button. But that was the thing with riddles. 
The answers never seemed obvious in retrospect, but the questions did. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I'm going to do this. Um, God, sex riddles. Sex riddles. That just gave me the washed sex rage. Oh, ever. well, let me get my wine. Okay, get your wine. I'll get my, man, I'll get my Manhattan. <laughs> okay. We can sit back and talk about those. That's never happened to you. You've never done that to anybody, have you? <laughs> what? Anybody you know? I mean, I'm just where did that you repeat the, from? I'm making you repeat the question like a politician does. I'm like, so the question is, have I done it to anybody I know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, no, I have not. Has somebody riddled me read you in bed? No, no. I've, I've, I've read people's short stories, um, but not as a, as a means of putting off. As a means of uh, sexual interaction. Defying. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Okay, I just wanted to check that before. I've we never actually that. done that to anyone, nor okay. have I ever made out with anyone named Judson. Sorry. Okay. There might be a Judson here tonight. I'm just putting that. Well, out hence there. my apology. I realized that you know. No, <laughs> the the short story that this novel is kind of based on and inspired by weaves in and out. So at this point, I don't think that there's been any. At that point, there hasn't been any, any mention of it. Victor finds. Out about a necklace. Tell us about the moment right. he finds out about the necklace I, at the wedding. Happily, yes. So this is obviously the the pieces I read are um, just before the wedding, um, and so while uh, they are at the wedding, Victor, who's as established a sort of sad sap and drinking a lot, um, is sent on an errand inside this sort of crazy mansion in Miami, which is like five stories, which you would never really have because the top of your house might get blown off. Um, but that's a marker of how rich they that's are. That's a marker of how rich they are, that they're like, we don't care. <laughs> um, but uh, so uh, Victor is wandering around. He has a big chip on his shoulder about, about the wealthy in general. And he's supposed to get a bottle of scotch from the groom's room. And he goes into the wrong room. And it's the mother of his mother's room. And he falls asleep on, his, on the bed because he's taken a pill as well. Um, and he falls asleep and she wakes him up because he's, you know, not where he's supposed to be. And she tells him this sort of rather cracked story um, about a necklace that went missing during the Nazi occupation of France. And Victor um, uh, does research for a living and he becomes sort of uh, enchanted by the idea that this necklace might be real and it might be the necklace from the famous short story, The Necklace. Which they'd um, all studied in college. Which they'd all studied in college. And Victor, you know, as a tiny snippet I read to you in the beginning where he's just been fired and he really has nothing better to do and no meaning. And so the book in many ways is about the search for meaning, um, the sort of obsession with wanting to be obsessed with something. You know, when I first actually pitched to my, to my editor, I said, you know, oh, it'll be like possession but funny. Um, he's like, I don't understand that I'm like well like the girl with the pearl earring but funny <laughs> it's like still nothing but yeah so that's so he becomes obsessed with this necklace and goes on a sort of hunt for it and then the other two follow him um, I, I mean they're all kind of obsessed with the sexual meaning in some way post-university and those friendships that I think we've all had where right. they're very intense when you're together on campus and then you leave campus and you go out into the real world and it's like you know what, what's the reason to stay in touch anymore and of course the wedding is one of those reasons for everybody to get together it's a kind of crucible um, for, right. for, for that moment and yes. it's very intense so Nathaniel his search for meaning is you know he's trying to write stories out in, in Los Angeles and he's telling everybody he's more successful right. than he is he's got a Fitzgerald bent to him yeah. um, with about as much success in LA I suppose <laughs> but the drinking and the, and the women are there um, yeah I mean they're all sort of a little bit lost I mean he's and they're they're acting as if their lives are better than they are so um, to you know this is where the, the sort of short story comes into it as well, where Victor has not told anyone he lost his job. 
Um, and Nathaniel uh, is just not having any luck in Hollywood, but is pretending he has. Kezia is kind of miserable, having left a major jewelry company to work for a smaller company where nothing works, and you know, gone from working with emeralds to petrified rat teeth. You know, she's she's fallen quite a ways. Um, but they all sort of. Um, we we'll talk about Kezia for just other. a minute with yeah, her sure. with her hideous boss Rachel. Yeah, let's talk about her. I mean, she is evil. <laughs> yes, she has a, a one of these. Um, she, her boss is an independent jewelry designer who, um, at one point, asked her to smell like nothing. Um, at another point, they're walking along the street and uh, they see a homeless person with a sign that's written in Sharpie, and her boss sort of muses and she wonders if it's all one big Sharpie they share. Um, because otherwise, why wouldn't you spend the money on other things if everybody has access to the Sharpies? There, she's pretty terrible. Um, but at the same time, it's, a, it's not quite the Devil Wears Prada relationship because Kezia is the most senior employee, mm. and she has all the institutional knowledge, whether she likes it or not. So they have this sort of um, twisted symbiotic relationship. Um, but they want to... Um, I mean, the short story, The Necklace, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure many people in this room are familiar with it. Um, but it is about a woman who's striving to be part of society and is sort of on the cusp of really making it. Um, and then because she loses a necklace she borrows, she has to pay that debt back for another decade or so. Um, and so it turns out that, you know, what you want is not what you think you want. Um, and uh, so... But that's that's people, not the ending of that, that story. I mean, she has to pay no. back... She, has, she works like a drudge and her lovely skin goes and her hair goes Everything and her nails goes. go and her husband has to you know, work incredibly hard and they pay off this debt over, right. I think, 10 years. And then, right. and then she runs into the woman that she borrowed the necklace from and she gave her, gave her back the necklace. And, and, and the she says with actually a, a bit of pride, which is really sad, when the woman says, you know, what happened to you? You look terrible. Um, in the story, at least the way I read it, I think she says she has a bit of pride in, in explaining what we've just discussed in this entire story of what happened. And the woman looks at her and says, oh, my dear, it was fake. It was paste. Um, I know. <laughs> it's really sad. And it was actually... Spoiler. It was Sorry. spoiler alert. And it was weirdly, um, all the French newspapers, when it came out, um, called it... They said it, they, it was all this controversy because they said it was too sad. Which is... Can you imagine on the cover of, like, the New York Times or the London Book Review? It's a pretty good book, but it's, it's too depressing. They shouldn't buy it. Just not a barometer that we use. So was that a story that you were obsessed by in college? You know, I was, I mean, the one of the, um, I'm sure there are several flaws in the book, but one of them that I actually secretly can see is that they all read it in college, and I think most people read it a lot earlier than that. Um, but they're in a French literature class, and they read it. Um, you know, it's never been my favorite short story. I'm a huge short story fanatic. You would think if I wrote a 400-page book based on a short story, I would like it, and I do. But... Um, I just wanted something classical to read and something, um, or something classic to read. And I had these character sketches of these three people. And I knew I wanted it to be a comedy of manners and the love triangle was starting to form, but they needed a sort of weight and a heartbeat that wouldn't make them just you know, three people sitting around at a cafe in Brooklyn, um, which is something I did not want. I wanted them to leave the house and leave the country. And, and get on a plane. Get and on go a plane, God forbid, and have a sort of coming of age story that you see a, a physical coming of age story, really, um, and not just sort of the navel gazing kind. And so, I was reading through. I thought, what would make me feel better? Because I can't think of the thing. So, just not really even for the book. I was reading through an anthology that had the necklace in it. Where, for those of you who have not read it, it's probably in your house. It's somewhere between yeah. like cathedral and the lottery. And um, I was surprised by how modern it felt and contemporary. And so. I didn't think I could do, I mean, for various reasons, there's the Zadie Smith trick of, you know, an entire novel based around another novel, or um, 
you know, I've always loved art forms that, like that, though. Like, I love Bel Canto, so, which is based on opera, you know, or books that are based on paintings. And I thought, how would I base a novel on a short story? And so I gave each of them the plot of the necklace instead of having the whole thing kind of crush the short story. And I mean, we've given away the ending for those of them who didn't know what the end of the necklace is. Oh, it's, I'm like, none of the it's book. Not, it's, not, it's not the ending of, <laughs> it's, not, it's, not, it's not the ending of your book. The, yes. ending, the ending is quite different. Yes. Um, but, you know, for the research for this, I mean, it took you five years and jewellery is a huge part of it. Obviously, mm. Kezi is a designer and there's, there's the sketch of the necklace. So you actually went to jewellery class and you created a fake jewellery range I for did. yourself as well. You're good. Yeah. <laughs> Are you selling it on QVC? No, I'm not like, selling you know? it on QVC, but it's, um, you know, I, I my sister uh, worked for Tiffany for many, many years. And um, there's even a joke in the in the book where at some point, um, Kezia and Nathaniel are in LA and, and Nathaniel yeah. says something about someone and she goes, oh, this is the UTI agent, right? And he's like, no, UTA, it's very, very different. Um, and you know, she sort of doesn't appreciate his condescension because she's like, oh, well, I bet you think Alexis Batar is a woman. Um, and there's just like a weird, you know. And there's an S in Tiffany. And there's an S in Tiffany, yeah. Um, but so yeah, my sister worked for them and then I consulted a couple of friends who also work in the jewelry field. She required the most research because um, while I've not been fired I have you know left a job um, and Victor gets fired for incompetence so my ignorance about the search and engine industry was kind of um, a good thing um, but so I thought I needed to know more know more about like the technical aspects of jewelry and so I basically went to um, the jewelry district in New York and talked to different people who sold jewelry and made a necklace and did everything but sell it. So I made the molds, I learned the terminology um, and the techniques, and you know, half of that stuff, of course, doesn't end up in the book, but um, the, the different names for different kinds of clasps and things like that. So you're just kind of mulching yourself uh, with the research so that you're yeah. kind of steeped in it and then you can and then you can discard it, just you know, take from it right. the little gems that you want. Well, I did the same thing with the, the whole novel. Um, you know, eventually, and this isn't spoiling anything too big, but eventually moves its way to Normandy, where Guy grew up, um, and because uh, we're on a first-name basis. <laughs> and um, I feel very close to him, although not too close. He was very lechy. Um, but so uh, it eventually moves there, and so I uh, sublet my apartment for a month and, and went and lived in Normandy, um, which yeah, was... You, a, you went to Dieppe. Yes, yes, and it and it's painted. So there's the less. So there's the 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 typical sort of. Um, I mean, if I may say so, like American enchantment with France and with Paris in this book that is very much at play. Um, but there's some really. They remind me of like the sort of crappy city outside of New York where I grew up. <laughs> um, so I actually felt very at home in some of these sort of northern. You know, not Rouen. That's a beautiful city, but like. Uh, the neighboring towns are are pretty rough, and you know I'm Victor. To remember gets... Dieppe? What what do I remember from Dieppe? Is there an ivory Here? museum in Dieppe? Did you go to the ivory? There's a big no, supermarket. No, but there is a big um, the there's a big supermarket. Uh, it's a port city. Um, it's near the chateau that uh, is relevant to the book, um, but it is um, the Canadians apparently um, had a, helped um, liberate it. In, I think, but it wasn't on D Day, it was a different day. But either way, there's a lot of like Canadian shaped shrubbery. Like there'll be like a, like there'll be like a Canadian leaf 
like on the side of a, a hill, so it's a little bit disorienting, but they love the Canadians there. Yeah. Um, and what was it like for you starting out with fiction, having written these very memoir essays, which are always careful to say aren't memoir, are, are essays, um, but are based on your own experience and very much feature you as a central character. So, you know, you're writing about yourself, you're using your lives, you're using the lives of people around you, and what you you use them up and you think, shit, I have to write a novel? Or you, or, or, you, or, you, or you always wanted to write fiction? And how did, how did you make that How did this get here? How did we get here? Um, yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, I feel like I started writing fiction first. Um, I wrote a really terrible novel um, right when I graduated. Not this one. <laughs> um, right when I graduated um, from college uh, that will never see the light of day. And then I sort of fell backwards into... What was it called? I might use the title for actually oh. my next essay, next essay collection. It was okay. the best part about it, though. And then there's 300 pages. <laughs> but there's, yeah. But um, At least you know it's bad. That's very important. I know it's bad. Well, I looked through it at some point um, before I started writing the class because I thought, surely there's something I can salvage. Um, and, you know, got a glass of whiskey <laughs> and went through and just, you know, was, was sort of comically, you know, tossing the pages onto my living room floor with every, you know, unusable page. Uh, and there was one line that was not half bad, where a woman takes a bite of toast and frowns at it, and where she takes the bite, the toast frowns back. Oh, that's it. See? Approval, bask in it. Yeah, but that's, right. I mean, but if that's the best you can eat out of 400 pages, something's very wrong. So, um, <laughs> so that got tossed. Um, and then with fiction, I mean, the change... The change was in, in where, actually most, I guess, in the humor, not in the heart. I mean, the idea, I always sort of um, get off on making people upset when they least expect it. It's something I enjoy. Um, in so, fiction or in real life? Uh, just in <laughs> <laughs> You look lovely. <laughs> no, no, in, um, in, in either nonfiction or fiction. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of the point of the essays is yeah. something... Something larger, hopefully, is always going on. I'm, I'm aiming for something uh, more heartfelt and, and so full, but making you uh, laugh until that moment happens. And hopefully the novel is the same way. Mm. Um, but the way I do it is just, you know, when something, an observation occurs to me, I don't have to question whether or not I'm going to, I would think of it because I thought of it. But with fiction, it's a matter of, you know, there's a restaurant scene where I could think of a thousand things that I would notice, but the two characters in the restaurant would not. Um, so in order to preserve you know, sort of the integrity of the novel and making them sound different from one another, that was the biggest challenge moving over is, is sort of reining it in and making not only a male character, but this book is told from two-thirds of a male perspective, so I had to make two very different men. And, and how was it writing men for you? Fun. Don't have to... Yeah, it's, it's honestly... The one thing that's good is the people who have... Um, given me feedback to say that they do sound different or they do sound realistic. It's comforting in a way that has nothing to do with writing. Um, it's comforting because I'm like, oh, we're not so different after all because all I did was just change the clothes and imagine, yeah. you know, how I think. So. I mean, as I asked that question, I thought it felt, it sounded slightly ludicrous, but I ask it because in every interview that you do, you get asked what it's like What's writing like? men, like it's the hardest thing to and imagine And men get that world. too, which is actually one of the yeah. rare, fair, uh, you know, there's so many interview questions I get that a man would not get. Um, but uh, I have to say, I think, uh, you know, Jonathan Franzen certainly gets mm. questions about writing women, you know, tons of, so it's actually one of the few fair questions. Um, but the thing is, it's, I mean, this is so hokey, but it's just human beings. I mean, I've met them. I've yeah. met a couple of them. So it's not like I had to, you know, make it up whole cloth. I mean, it's not science fiction for the most part. <laughs> I'm going to take a couple of questions now for Sloan. Uh, of course, at Sylvia's hand is up. Yeah. Hi. 
other questions, please be thinking of them. Hello. Hello. Good to see you again. So it's an interesting question, which is about um, making the switch. Because when you were here before, you were still working as a publicist mm -hmm. in publishing. And in fact, didn't you publicize David Nichols's yes. novel? He's here Where somewhere. Is he? we can, you can dish the dirt on him later. He's was one he of pushy? my favorites. Was he like, get me the coffee? He is, he was, yeah. <laughs> He's one of my favorites. He wouldn't, yeah, he wouldn't go to certain cities because he thought, no, I'm kidding. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to cut this before. <laughs> no, he was actually one of my favorites so, ever. But, I remember talking to you about it and saying, you know, were you thinking of making the move? And you were really nervous about Mm -hmm. making the move from, you know, doing what you were doing to becoming a full-time writer. And actually, you took quite a long time to do it. So, I mean, how, how, is it, how is it writing different now? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, there's the old, you know, you can give yourself enough rope to hang yourself. Um, and so, um, and I don't mean that literally, I shouldn't say that with this profession, but, um, but it's more, um, you know, I used to have assigned periods of time when I could work on the essays. And the reason why I quit also is because essays, um, in, the, in the most profound thought of the evening, essays end um, frequently. And so you can stop and move on to another train of thought once that one has come to completion. And this one is more like building this constant puzzle, constant, you know, you have to water it every day um, and use a lot of um, mixed metaphors when you're doing it. <laughs> um, and so I needed that time to, to do it. And it took me a while to get used to, I have to say, if you ever, you know, quit your job to freelance, I'm sure some people have done that, you know, even if it's not writing. There's a weird thing that happens where um, everyone I, you know, had worked with says, oh, how much are you loving it? Which doesn't really leave room in that question, you know, you have to answer on a scale of one to ten, even if the answer is zero. Um, and so it took me a really long time to get adjusted because I was such a company girl in a, in a lot of ways and to really own it and think, okay, this is what I'm doing. I have the confidence to, to do it. Um, and then the other thing that's very motivating is, is fear. So when you give up, you know, um, when you start paying for your own health insurance, you write much faster. <laughs> so that's, yeah. I'll take another question for Sloan. And it's not from the person who emailed me to say, I sent her my resume once asking to be my assistant. She never got back to me. Do you think I can talk to her tonight? She's Did here. I never get She's back here. To her? You never got back to her. It's okay. Um, I don't have an assistant. It's, it's fine. Um, I'll take one more question. There's lots of hair touching, but no hands going up. Okay, I'll, uh, which is going to come from me then in oh, that hi. case, which is um, you managed <laughs> to write another novel at the time that you were writing this novel, but it's coming out under pseudonym. Tell us about that. Okay, um, so yeah, I, I mean, as per the first two books, I sort of thrive on two jobs. Um, I think a lot of people do. It's not an unusual mm. thing to say when people are like, oh, I work well with deadlines. It's so weird. Like everyone... Everyone does that. Um, but uh, so I wrote a novel uh, with a friend of mine. Um, a novel is sort of a big word for it, but it's uh, 200 pages uh, and it's epistolatory, also a big word for it, but it's uh, in emails. Oops. It's in emails and it's about a couple whose relationship falls apart over the course of about eight months. And my friend handled all the, the men, the male characters, and I handled all the female ones. Um, but it's very light and fun. And it's actually illustrated by a really wonderful British um, artist named Nina Cosford. Um, and, uh, but I use the name Sky Chatham because A, I didn't want it to get in the way of my actual novel. Um, and B, it was something so different. And so it was very freeing to write about boys and write about dating and it's stuff that because I have my anatomy, people sometimes assume that the essays are about, and they're really not. I mean, there's like one essay about men in, the, in, in like out of 20. Um, and, but it was fun to actually do that and feel free to do it without, you know, uh, a fear of labels or anything like that. Um, and just to prove how light I felt it was, the name Sky Chatham 
as my porn star name. Do you guys know how to achieve this yes. algorithm? Yeah, it's meant it's your first pet and the street you grew up on. Um, and so it's meant, obviously, for, you know, um, Fluffy Ridge would be an amazing, yeah. amazing Fluffy one. Ridge. Right, yeah. Or, yeah. Or, or, you know, Manhattan kids are terrible at it because it's all 78th Street, you know, it doesn't... <laughs> It doesn't. It's, it does. It doesn't work. Um, but so that was her, and so that was my my pseudonym. I'm just thinking my, my porn star name is Pertwi Armor. Not bad. Yeah, very good. And on that note, slow <laughs> Thank you so much for being here.